We're in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus. Um, it's, it'll be important if you have that map that I passed out a couple of sessions ago close by, because we're going to need to be referring to that uh, uh, in just a little bit. Um, what, is, what is happening here, as you know, is the children of Israel are now a nation. They are called that, the community of Israel, you could translate that the nation, but obviously you're not thinking of nation the way we use it today with defined boundaries and so on. Uh, God is about to take them, I don't think we'll get to that point today, but I think we will next week, uh, to Sinai, uh, where he will give them their constitution, which is the law. But in, that, in this interim, as they're moving from Egypt, and you know, as you know, all the miraculous and remarkable power of God demonstrated in the plagues and so on, God has now taken them from Egypt, and they're now on the east side of the Gulf of Suez, or the Red Sea, and um, we're almost at the area, if you're looking on that map, of Rephidim, which is along, again, the east side of this body of water, Red Sea, Gulf of Suez, etc. And we'll be looking at that uh, before we're done today. Um, there are five major miraculous developments here uh, in these chapters. We started last week uh, in this, this section as they're moving towards Sinai with a number of ways in which God is miraculously demonstrating his care, uh, his covenant loyalty to them, the provision of food, the quail at night, and the um, <clears throat> manna during the day, as you know. And secondly, the institution of the Sabbath, which again, this was in chapter 16. Shabbat is the Hebrew word for that, rest. And we talked a lot about the importance of that. And then thirdly, God is beginning to encourage them, that is the Israelites, to develop a practice of memorials to remember him and what he's done. And the first significant memorial outside of the practice of the Sabbath, which is another one, is the jar of manna that will be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, all of these things you just kind of, kind of keep in your mind because they're going to keep coming up as we get further further into the text. Now, the fourth uh, major event is what occurs in uh, chapter 17, the first seven verses. Now, this is, this is a, a point where I want to connect this with Numbers chapter 20. And if you were here last week, I asked you to read Numbers 20. Uh, and if you didn't, that's fine. But uh, we're going to turn back to that. So most of you have a Bible. So we'll be turning back to Numbers 20 in just a moment. Both of these instances, here in chapter 17 of Exodus and then in Numbers 20, refer to the children of Israel murmuring against Moses because they don't have enough water to drink and how God miraculously provides for them. One I shouldn't say one. Both are unbelievable miracles. You, you can't imagine how miraculous this was. Because remember from the sheet I gave you last week, we kind of posited what the numbers looked like. The numbers of the children of Israel, the amount of food, the amount of water that was required daily. And their extrapolations, they're, they're not, you know, we know there were 600,000 men, but some of the other 
uh, figures are, uh, you know, just based on that, what would be the number of women, number of children, and so on. But no matter how you look at it, you're looking at a very large number of people. And so that God is going to provide water for that larger number of people plus their animals is nothing short of miraculous. But the second... The next one down was the column and about how large it was. That's and correct. How long it took. That's correct. That's awesome. Yes. That's correct. A lot of people. Right. And even, like I said, I mean, the, you know, that total number is an extrapolation of what that word means, don't you? An extrapolation from no 600,000 is accurate to extrapolate from that to number of women, children, animals, etc. Even if it's half of that, that's still an extraordinary number of people. And uh, so it's just miraculous how God cares for them during this time until they get into the promised land. Um, did you reference uh, a, a certain square mile that, that the people and the cattle uh, would have occupied, Jim, last time? Did you address that as, like, I couldn't remember if it's 10 square mile or... I'm not sure I, I remember referencing that. I don't think there, that statistic, um, I don't sheet. think it's here, is it? Ten and a half miles square. It's on the reverse side. Okay, okay. There and, you go. Okay. And I just wanted to point out, if you take uh, Omaha, run it from east to west, from the river out to 31 south, that's 17 miles. And, it, and then if you go north and south of the city, that's 17. Well... If you would think of 10 miles of just occupying and moving, uh, like, you know, 10 seventeenths of Omaha, that's significant. It is. It is. It is. So, given all of that in review, now chapter 17. I want to introduce chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 7, and then I want to go to numbers 20. But I want to make a geological and geographical comment, if I could, all right? First of all, they are at Rephidim in the east side of that body of water, Gulf Suez, Red Sea, etc. And Moses will be instructed by God to strike the rock. And from the rock will pour forth water adequate to, to uh, fulfill all the needs of the people and the animals. The rocks there are basalt rocks. So, and do you know what I mean by, by basalt? I mean, they're, they're very hard rocks that are a result of volcanic activity, you know, thousands of years ago or whatever. And so um, that was an absolute miracle for God to bring water out of a basalt rock. When we are in the wilderness of Zin, which is in Numbers chapter 20, that's much farther north, that's at the very southern end of the Negev, the northern end of the Arabian Desert, there the rock are limestone. And you know what limestone is? Limestone is a very soft rock. It's, it's not hard like basalt. And it was very normal, uh, it's still that way today, for shepherds to find little, little uh, curvatures in the rock and hit that, and water will come forth because water's trapped in there. So that was not an unusual thing for the shepherd to do. When we're in Numbers 20, God gives Moses the command, speak to the rock. Because for someone to strike a rock that's limestone and water to come out of it is not necessarily a terribly miraculous thing to see, because that's what shepherds did. 
So God is giving him this clear instruction, don't strike the rock. But as you're going to see in a moment, when we read Numbers uh, 20, Moses is so angry and so frustrated with the children of Israel, he slams that rock with his, with his uh, staff. And that's why God will be so severe in his discipline of Moses. So the geography and geology of these two areas is really important to understand why God gives different commands here to achieve the same result. Did I, miss, did I, did I uh, cause confusion? Are you with me? Okay, it's just to keep those two geological uh, realities in your mind as we look at these two passages. The result is the same. Water will come. But the end for Moses is going to be very different. So let's look first at the material in uh, Numbers, uh, sorry, in Exodus 17, and then I do want to go to Numbers 20, just for point of contrast, as you'll see. The whole Israelite community, now that is a phrase, I'm reading from NIV here, but that's a phrase that has been used so far since they left Egypt. They are now a distinct nation of people. That's why that phrase is so important set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place, the place the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim. And on the map that I've given you, you can see where they are. So they're approximately halfway down uh, the east coast of the, the, the Red Sea or the Gulf of Suez. But there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And again, this was typical. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Um, Every one of these instances where you see this scenario, they're short of something. It's food, water, whatever. They grumble and murmur and complain. It's a test from God. It really is. Do you trust me enough? So it's always, and I'm not trying to be easy, because I'm pretty sure if I were there, I would have been leaving the murmuring group. I'd have been the number one murmur and number one grumbler. Uh, so, And I, none of you would have, I know. You, you would have been the righteous, sanctified ones who would never play. You would have been saying, we must trust the Lord, Ekman, shut up. We must trust the Lord. So it's a test because God has demonstrated again and again and again and again and again his faithfulness to them. He is not going to abandon them. But, of course, one can understand that, why they are murmuring as they are uh, murmuring. Then verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now that should bring memories back how important that staff was. It was a symbol of his authority. It was what God had instructed him again and again and again to use, whether he was confronting Pharaoh or, or dealing with the parting of the Red Sea. I will stand here before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. And water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Mirabah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. They're saying, is the Lord not among us? Is the Lord among us or not? Massah means testing. Mirabah means means. This is God's means of testing Israel. 
All right, so another miraculous demonstration of God's awesome power, but equally of his faithfulness. And that word which we've looked at, we'll see it again, a chesed, covenant loyalty of God. He will not abandon them. They just need to learn that. Now, if you have, uh, you know, a, a Bible or on your phone or whatever, turn over to Numbers 20. I want to, I want to focus on this because of the contrast. Uh, the situation is almost identical, but it's approximately 38 years later. Um, by the time we're in Numbers 20, this is the second. Gen um, well, not quite right what I said. By the time we're in Numbers 20, a significant portion of the generation that left Egypt is dead. We haven't come across this yet, but you, you, you probably know this from your other studies of the scriptures. Um, the, children, the children of Israel that came out of Egypt are so doubting of God and so doubt the report that um, Joshua and Caleb give, that we can go in now, let's take the land. They said, no, there are giants there, we're not going. But they believe the report of the ten, deny the report of J uh, Joshua and Caleb. And so God says, all right, then you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. <coughs> so Numbers 20 is near the end of that wilderness wandering period. So the generation of, of Israelites in Numbers 20 is, for the most part, the second generation. Do you understand what I mean by all that? Does that all make sense? And so um, you see the same kind of problem. They are murmuring, they're grumbling, they're doubting. Despite everything that they knew, all that their parents had told them, everything that they'd been instructed, they're still grumbling. So that's the context of Numbers 20. And all I'm trying to stress is it's a different, many of them, it's a different group, because the older group has died, or at least most of them had. So just look at the situation. And the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now, I, on your map, you, you can find Kadesh. Kadesh is up here. So there, I mean, now numbers, numbers 20 is about 38 years after Exodus 17. So anyway, they have moved. They've gotten the law. They've now moved up, and they're very close to the promised land. They're not that far. That, and what's going to happen is a bunch of other things are going to occur, as you'll see in a minute. But anyway, so this is, it's, it's much farther north, and as I said in a, a moment ago, the rock here, this, this is limestone rock. This isn't the basalt of the southern Arabian Peninsula. So just keeping all that in mind. Now, Miriam died there and was buried there. That, the only reason that's important, Miriam, as you remember, is the sister of Moses and Aaron. It's just reminding you again, this is the different generation. Miriam is now dying. Miriam represented that older generation that had doubted the Lord. And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled against Moses and Aaron. Does that sound familiar? And the people thus contended, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Who? Whose brothers? The people that died as they're wandering around the wilderness for 30 years. They're saying, and I'm preaching now, so i got to stop it. I'm, I'm teaching, not preaching. So really, what they're doing is they're doing, you know, it's better for us to have died with our mothers and dads and brothers and uncles. That's a, isn't that an outrageous thing to say? 
Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates or pizza or peanut butter ice cream or Reese's peanut butter cups. That was all added. It's done in the Bible. And there's water. There's water to drink. As Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway, the tent of meeting, and fell on their faces. So, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. That's why I wanted to look at Numbers 20. Nothing's changed. This is a 38 years. There's still doubts. There's still complaining, still grumbling, still murmuring. Therefore, like we do. Exactly. But you said that, Woody. I didn't say that. (laughs) But it is. So you see, nothing has changed. And remember, Moses has been doing this. Now it's getting close to 40 years. And I'm, I'm not trying to justify Moses' defiant disobedience of God, but I want you to understand it. But he goes into the presence of the Lord, tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle? We haven't talked about that yet. We will before we're done with the study of Exodus. But he goes to the tabernacle, he and Aaron, they fell on their face. The glory of the Lord appeared. And the Lord spoke to Moses, take the rod, the same rod, same staff that we just read about in Exodus 17 that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus. You and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and notice a very important instruction. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it may yield its water. Now, it's different than Exodus 17, where God said, strike the rock. And I, I told you, again, the reason is, if Moses, if God's instruction were to strike the rock, it's limestone, Shepherds did that all the time. Now, granted, they don't have the huge flock, but they did it all the time. Water is, that's what limestone, that's why it's such a soft rock. Limestone captures the water. And so you break the limestone rock, and water can come out of it. So that's not an unusual thing to see a shepherd do. So God says, speak to the rock. And the people who are shepherds, they would say, man, this is a miracle. speaking to the rock, and the water is coming. You, may, you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation their beast drink. So Moses took the rod from the Lord, from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them that he is Moses. Now look at these words. Listen now, you rebels, shall we... Bring forth water for you out of this rock. Now, if I were preaching this message, and I have preached Numbers 20, I would have really added a lot of voice, intonation. I'd have tried to capture what was coming out of Moses' mouth. So how do you think he said, you rebel? Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, disdain cynicism, a a glib, condescending, here we go, you know, how many times I've had you rebels? And then shall we bring forth water? Moses. What's the first person plural pronoun doing there? Shall we, we bring forth water? Who brings forth the water? God does. Now, not to justify, but to understand. 
Moses is frustrated. Moses has been doing this for 38, going on 39, soon to be 40 years. And it's the same scenario, the same complaint, the, the, the same accusations. I mean, it's just, it gets to him. So he is just exploding in anger. And so out of anger, verse 11, then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Can't you just imagine? I mean, this rod would have been about nine feet. He takes it just like a baseball bat, slams it against the rock twice. Can't you see him doing that? He's angry. He's frustrated. He's yelling at these people. And he strikes it just like a big baseball bat. And the water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. God still blessed despite Moses' disobedience. In my Bible, I wrote the word grace. There's no reason for God to have done that. But God cares about the people. God cares about their well-being. And despite Moses' disobedience, he still provides water. But there is a cost to this. And it's for Moses. Look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Many years ago when I first studied this, I thought, come on, Lord. You're being so hard on Moses. Give him a break. Lord, he's been doing this for decades and decades. Can't you understand? But did you see the words of the Lord? First, you have not believed me. You could put another word in there because there are synonyms. You have not trusted me, Moses. You've been telling the people over and over and over and over and over again, trust Yahweh. You didn't do that. And treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. You just showed them that what I tell you to do doesn't matter. You can defy me. You can disobey me. Disobey me. Now, here, here is one of the key dimensions of what's going on in number 20 when we think to apply it. Leaders are always called to a higher standard. And Moses just blew it because out of frustration and anger, he did directly, intentionally defy what God had said. And so God says, Moses, you, you have defiled me. You have misrepresented me. You have done what I did not tell you to do. You acted out of anger. You flaunted your pride when you said, shall we do it again? We've done this showing. Moses, this isn't we. I'm the one who does it. And so it's, I mean, it sounds harsh. I mean, it is. It, it's a harsh discipline for God to give to Moses. But leaders are always called to a higher standard. And therefore, when a leader falls, So many others are affected by his fall. And that 
is also when a leader does what the Lord wants him or her to do and does it with integrity, it builds up the reputation of God, his worthiness to be trusted because you represent him to your people. And so this is a very serious issue. It's a very serious, it's a very serious issue for Moses personally, but it's a tremendous, a tremendous illustration of the importance of integrity, forthrightness, and doing what God wants you to do without question as a leader. And when you don't do that, the consequences are severe. Uh, Jim, God probably knew that this was going to happen before it happened. Would, I mean, would we, knowing that God is omniscient? God's omniscient, which means he knows everything, then this didn't catch him on his blind side. And, and so, we, how does that apply to us today that some time ago, each one of us made a decision about the cross and Jesus Christ to trust that cross and God's provision of the cross for our salvation and our eternity. Um, I mean, is there parallels with, with us today around the table and knowing what has happened with us since we first received Christ until this day as we sit here at this table? Well, yeah, I mean, there are layers there of your question, but I, I think absolutely. I mean, the important thing is this, this situation with Moses is not affecting his eternal destiny. It's not affecting his initial con commitment of faith to the Lord but it is illustrating something, Fred. I'm not sure this is where you're going. Our position with the Lord is secure. But if we choose to defy him, the consequences are something we'll have to live with. Moses is forgiven by the Lord. Moses is restored. We will see Moses in heaven. But there was a consequence to Moses' defiance. And that temporal consequence was, Moses, you will not lead these people into the promised land. Josh was going to do that. You, what you did is serious, and the people must see that I do not take this defiance of me flippantly. It's a serious situation. You are the leader of these people. You have just defiled me, defied me, and shamed my word in the front of the people. You did what I told you not to do. Would you say that that is like a discipline? Of it is. That's the right word. This, this is the discipline of Moses. This is why we fear the Lord. Yes. Because he will discipline. That's right. But he disciplines, as Hebrews 12 says, we studied that a couple years ago, because he loves us. It proves we're his child. Like all of you, I don't know, I think all of you have had children or whatever, but you know, in raising your children, you discipline your children. I, don't dis I didn't discipline my neighbor's kids. I disciplined mine. Because I love them. And so that's the same point. And with Moses, it, it's a tragedy in his life, but it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important, and that's how I've used it often in, in sessions with leaders, it's an incredibly important illustration of the responsibility of leadership. It really is. This is a very important point of the responsibility of leadership and if you don't take it seriously because when you defy God and you um, 
shame his name, that's a very serious, because it'll just roll through your organization or your church. I mean, when a pastor, a lead pastor, defames the name of the Lord, a whole congregation is affected by it. Just an entire congregation of people. It's very serious business. You know, I mean, I, I, I can cite, I know of four guys I went to seminary with. They all went into the pastor and the church. They're no longer pastors because they had extramarital affairs. They lost their credibility as a pastor. They lost their right to lead. Now, they were all forgiven. They've all been restored to the Lord. But the consequence of what they did was severe. They lost their right to minister and serve. And so, and I don't want to make too much of this because none of you are pastors, but all of you to one degree or another are leaders. If nothing more than leaders of your home, but many of you have had leadership responsibility and so on. And it's really, really, really serious. And I think we don't take that often as seriously as we should. And here's an example of no matter, Moses was so faithful to the Lord for nearly 40 years but in, in front of the children of Israel, he defiled and shamed the name of the Lord and did exactly the opposite of what God told him to do. And God had, God had to demonstrate, I take this seriously. I see hands going up out of the left. What, what was Moses' options? He was the leader. What was his options for watering the group? I mean, God told him to, very clear, speak to the rock. Prior to their murmuring. No, that's in verse 8. After their murmuring and griping, they go into the tabernacle, and God okay. says, this is what I want you to do. So he gave him instruction. He, he told him very specifically, verse 8, this is how I want you to do this. And all I did was adding a little bit just to explain why it was so important in the limestone rock area to speak and not strike it. And just because to strike in a limestone area where shepherds, that's... Oh, well, I saw Joe do that last week. You know, I'm making that up, but, you know, he watered his little flock with that. Woody? Wasn't, uh, he was also taking credit. Well, there's pride in this. I mean, he says we. I mean, that's out of anger. And, I mean, I, I, when, I, when I have preached this, I try to really add the inflection. I mean, you can just hear Moses. He has just had it. He's up to here with these people. How many times has he stood in the gap between him and, and between the children of Israel and the Lord? Countless times. And he just had it. He had a bad day. He didn't get his coffee in the morning. I'm making all that up. But, I mean, it just you can understand why Moses is reacting this way. But he's a leader. God told him very specifically what he's supposed to do, and he didn't do it. But Moses, being a, a human, <laughs> erred. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the other point is that God's judgment here was was in, in that context the the plan for God is to eventually get to Jesus right. who died for us on the cross right. and provides our salvation and that's that's a different different aspect than than what how God's dealing with Moses at this point. And even even with Jesus, though, there is that that you see several times in the New Testament. Jesus was obedient to the Father, even unto death. There's never any illustration. Granted, Jesus is the God-man, but there's never any point where Jesus disobeys his Father. 
Moses disobeyed God. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's a point of application for us. Take what the Lord says seriously. Wow. I think you just answered my, my question about the emphasis on obedience as well as leadership. Yeah. We all are called to obey. I can see Bill Cosby making a comedy thing out of this. He's yeah. not a good one to bring up right now. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So I'm I know it's yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you ever see his? Do you ever see his comedy routine on Noah? Yeah. Yes. That is fantastic. That's yeah. what I was thinking yeah. of. I, I mean, I can see him the frustration and and, and, and paying attention. You know, and I, I can see him making excuses. Lord, you've been hitting me hitting all these rocks. How can I keep on? Now you tell me to speak. How can I do that? Yeah. 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 It's just. It's, there's so many good applications for this that are sure. So I, I wanted to make sure we did that. I'm not one of good words. Okay, Moses, here's Aaron. He'll speak for you. In um, yes. verse 12 here of Numbers 20, <clears throat> poor Aaron did nothing but stand there, and yet Apparently. he gets roped in, Apparently, and he never yeah. enters the promised land. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. And it, it was because he and Moses are like this as the leaders, <laughs> and they, you know, they do it sync. Because Aaron presumably could have been something. Aaron said, "Moses, stop and grabbed him. You're not supposed to stop." But no, Moses. And Aaron says, "Yeah," because Aaron's the same way. And Miriam wasn't there to. And Miriam has passed uh, to, away. To, That's to right. Call. That's right. Take her, take her brother to task. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. I just I wanted to spend a little more time on that, and I hope. No, it was helpful to compare the, the Exodus 17 with the Numbers 20. Same kind of situation, but very different result. So come back now with me to chapter 17 of Exodus, and we'll look at the fifth and final series of miraculous things God does to demonstrate to the people once again his faithfulness. This, this too has significant implications for the rest of the Old Testament. It's the Amalekites. Verse 8, now the Amalekites. The Amalekites are nomadic uh, raiders and kind of pirates in the Arabian desert. And, I mean, that's kind of the best way to talk about them. They were nomadic, pagan, polytheistic, animistic raiders who just pillaged and, and constantly attacked the caravans and the mining districts and they all those and so they attack Israel. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, now by the way, this is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible. He's going to become very, very important, as you know, because he will succeed Moses much later. Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the stamp of God in my hands. So presumably Joshua already is being developed as a future leader. He's some kind of military expertise or whatever. And the instructions that Moses gives to Joshua are clear. So Moses, excuse me, verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur, Hur is another one of the elders of Israel, he will come up again, went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses' hands were held up, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. 
And Moses' hands grew tired, and they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. Moses and Hur held his hands up on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained from steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now, again, that sounds a little mysterious, but this, this reflects something. The children of Israel must learn dependence on Yahweh. And Moses' staff represented the power of God. And that's going to, the Aaron staff, the Moses' staff is going to end up in the Ark of the Covenant later on. So this is a symbol of God's presence through Moses and Aaron and so on. And so as long as Moses is holding his hands with his, that God is blessing. What does this reflect? It is a symbolic object lesson for the children of Israel. We are dependent on Yahweh. And so this is an example of that, and as long as we're doing what God wants us to do, he will bless. And so they, they kept them up for that reason, and he does, that is Joshua does, triumph. They are able to neutralize this threat of the Amalekites. Now what follows, is extremely important for the rest of biblical history. And Moses, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. I want to make a comment or two. God, this is one of the numerous instances throughout the book of Exodus, and we see it in other parts of the Torah, where God gives instruction, write this down, write this down, write this down. That's one of the reasons why we are convinced that what Moses is writing down is eventually what becomes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he tells them to write on a scroll. That a scroll was something made of papyrus. Papyrus were the leaves from the reeds along the Nile River. And this is, this is what they wrote on. We have, we have many, many examples of these that have been found in archaeology. So that's what he's doing. But God says, I'm going to blot out the Amalekites. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19, he says it. So Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. That's Yahweh Nissi, N-I-S-S-I in Hebrew. One of the many, many names of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh Nissi. He's my banner. He's our banner. He is the one who fights for us. You know, the banner of a military, you know what a banner is, you know, a little flag that flies. That's, that's what he's saying. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war with the Amalekite from generation to generation. Is that true? Yes. Now, I want you to fast forward just for a moment. Just to, I want to show you how significant this theme is. Saul, 1 Samuel 15. Saul, I want you to destroy the Amalekites once and for all. So Saul does battle against the Amalekites, obeys much of what the God says, but he keeps all the animals, and he keeps the king, and then Samuel comes and says, What's this I hear, Saul? I hear animals. Oh, the people forced me to keep the animals, and so on. 
But Saul did not fulfill that. This is 1 Samuel 15. For Saul was given the instructions, chapter 14 and 15, to destroy the Amalekites. He doesn't do it. That's approximately 1,000 B.C. Fast forward 500 years to Esther. Do you remember who she is? She is the wife of Artaxerxes, the great king of Persia. The king of Persia who invaded the Greek Empire. Thermopylae, Marathon, ten years earlier. This is the Xerxes of Thermopylae, Salamis, Plataea. There's great Greek battles in history. I don't know how familiar with are. Esther is his wife. And it's really, really important when you read Mordecai, who was the uncle of Esther, who serves in the court of Artaxerxes, is a descendant of Kish, of Saul. Kish is the father of Saul. Mordecai, descendant of Kish, Saul. Haman, you remember him? Mm-hmm. He's the arch enemy. He convinces Xerxes to issue an edict to wipe out all the Jews. Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. So this is the final battle between Israel and the Amalekites. And it looks like the Amalekites are going to win. It looks like Haman is going to succeed in wiping out every Jew on planet Earth. (coughs) What happens? It's reversed. And through Esther being the queen and she throws a couple banquets, it's discovered that Haman launched all this plot to deceive Xerxes and Haman ends up on the scaffolding that was built to kill Mordecai. Finally, finally, the Amalekites disappear from history. Isn't that a great story? How that theme just works through biblical history? What God said here it takes over 500, no, it takes almost 1,000 years for this to be fulfilled. This is about 1446 B.C. Esther and Xerxes is about 430 B.C. So it's just amazing. It's, it's just amazing consistency of what God says. God will, it took 1,000 years for this to be completely and finally obeyed. I just thought I'd throw that all in. So don't take this lightly, what God is saying. They stood against Israel, and they are defiant. Uh, There are things probably we don't even know about all that was going on. But God is going to get rid of the Malachites because of their defiance of him and against his people. All right. Yes, sir. Jim, please. One thing I've been thinking about, I mean, obviously the Lord had... uh, prevailed on the side of Israel here in this circumstance mm-hmm. and others, um, where he's given, given them as a nation great victories. Absolutely. But that does not mean that there weren't casualties on the side of Israel. Israel, that's right. And families had significant losses. That's right. So, I mean, that's one thing as a nation to see God's great victory. But on the other hand, as an individual... Sometimes there are terrible setbacks and costs associated with it. I just wondered how those people felt that God was faithful Mm -hmm. individually while he was being faithful nationally. Wow, I've talked this many times. Nobody's never asked a question quite like that. It's a great question. Um, With 
very few exceptions. Um, there are a few throughout the Old Testament history. But rarely do you get that kind of insight where you look at an individual family or individual loss like that. Uh, that's a great question. I would think that there would have been some of those families, because you're correct, as they're dealing battle with the Amalekites, there would have been some of the Israelites would have been killed. There's no doubt about that. So how, how would they individually look at this? And the scriptures don't give us any insight on that. Rarely does it focus on something individual like that. But I would think you're right. Um, some would question that. But as they see God um, doing what he said he would do, being faithful to them as a nation, as he's step by step by step taking them to the promised land, which fulfilling his covenant promises. So another thing to remember, and this is something that um, is theological, and I, I don't know if this would have been an element in how people were thinking even at that point, but the Old Testament makes it very clear that there was a clear understanding of the resurrection. There was a clear understanding of eternal life. That's not just a New Testament teaching. Isaiah 19, uh, uh, 46, Job 46, 19, and a bunch of other illustrations of that. I think I got those references right. But um, So, you know, there is that holding on to there is a future, there is an eternity with God. So, but I, I don't know, Jim. There would have to be some people that would question and have doubts about um, what what is really happening because they just lost their son in the battle with the Malachites or later on with some of the others they're going to have to fight Og and Sihon these guys on the east side of the Jordan River before they get into the promised land and once they get into the promised land thousands and thousands and thousands of them are going to die in the campaign led by Joshua to capture the Canaanite cities so um, each one of them would have to reconcile that but certainly, Jim, they would see the faithfulness of God in doing what he said he was going to do, fulfill his promises to them. So It's the same thing that I think you and I face. You faced it with, with the loss of your, your first wife. The, the questioning that just comes up naturally as a result of something so tragic. God's made a lot of promises to you. But for reasons that only eternity will completely explain to you, he took your first wife home a lot earlier than you thought he would. Why did he do that? I mean, I'm just, I can't, I'm just using it as an illustration because I, I know your story. And that's the kind of thing that we all wrestle with in our, the circumstances of our life. Um, and I, each one individually has to work through that. You did, you know, We've had two in our family and situations, and you just you, you have to work through it and uh, come out of it with a, a deeper trust and uh, commitment to the Lord's goodness as, as best you can in that circumstance. That's a great question. That's a great question. <clears throat> Chapter 18. We're introduced, uh, although this is not the first time we've met him, but this is Jethro. He is the father-in-law of Moses. Moses married Jethro's daughter, Zipporah was her name. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses. Now, this is kind of the setting of what happens. Moses, again, you have to remember some of this. Midian 
Median is over on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. You remember, you got to go back quite a bit in our study. When Moses killed that overseer during the enslavement period, he had been in the house of Pharaoh, and he killed an overseer. Moses III is the, the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he decides he's going to try to kill Moses. And Moses flees. Where does he go? He goes to Midian. And Jethro, it says, is a priest of Midian. Um, that can mean a religious office. He was a leader of the Midianite tribe. The Midianites are descendants of Ishmael. I'm telling you all that. It's just trying to identify. Because we're doing in-depth Bible study, you should be able to bring up some of these names and what the, how they fit. I hope that is true. So Jethro heard of everything God had done for Moses, for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. Now that's a new piece of information. Moses had sent his family back to her family for protection, presumably. It tells us that Moses' two sons are named Gersom, for Moses, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was Eliezer, where he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Both of his sons each have a unique meaning. They were named to reflect, as often did in the Old Testament, what had been happening in Moses' life. So, Zipporah and his two sons have been with her dad. Jethro, her father, hears what has happened. So verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness. So they travel from Midian, go up around the Gulf of Aqaba, come down and go across to near Rephidim. And they're reunited. Okay, that's just telling us that they're reunited. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Respect, dignity. They greeted each other, then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things that the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the land of Egypt, and the Pharaohs who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering, and they offered sacrifices to God. Notice the sequence, praise which leads to worship. So this is just significant. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law in the presence of God. This is an ancient Near Eastern peace covenant agreement. It's, just a, it's a wonderful illustration of shalom between Midianites and Israel. Jethro, Moses. Verse 13. Now, a lesson in leadership that Moses has to learn. Who's his teacher? His father-in-law. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge of the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When all when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? 
Why do you keyword alone sit as judge while all the people stand around from you from morning till evening? What's going on here? Now remember, they are a new nation. They have a new calendar. They have new feast days. Remember Passover, Feast of Unleavened, and all that, remember? Now, as a nation... Who is going to settle their disputes, domestic disputes, challenges and problems in interpersonal relationships? Presumably, there would have been, I don't know, crimes and disputes committed. Somebody stealing my sheep yesterday. I don't know who it was, but I think it was Joe, whose tent is three tents over. I'm just making this up, but who's going to settle these disputes? What's the answer? Moses. And so they're camped at Rephidim. They're almost at, the, at the, 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 the base of Mount Sinai. You have these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people swarming all around. All kinds of problems develop, and they come to Moses. Joe stole my sheep last night. I can prove it. Who's going to settle it? Moses. And so Jethro, who comes from Midian, is watching his son-in-law do this. Moses? Why are you doing this? It's a leadership question. Moses, you're assuming the responsibility. I'm not sure you should assume that responsibility. What's the answer? Delegate authority. You can't do it all. Delegate authority. Now that's a, that's a, a principle of leadership. Moses has to learn. You would think Moses might have figured that out on his own. He would had the best training possible in ancient Egypt. God trained him in dependence on him for 40 years in the Midianite desert. Here's Moses. Now Moses answered, because the people came to me to seek God's will. Whenever they had a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instruction. I'm using what God has explained to me to help them settle. So this is great. This is a great section. Do we have time to get into it? We have two and a half minutes. Let's see. Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God, and bring their disputes to him. Okay. You are the mediator between God, Yahweh, and the people. That's clear. Verse 20. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Okay, Moses, I want to redefine your role. You are the mediator. But teach people. Don't just wait till disputes come up to say, well, this is what God's will says. No, teach them. And did you notice? Teach them is a time of instruction, but you notice, show them. Teaching involves instruction and modeling. Instruction and modeling. Instruction and modeling. If a teacher is teaching his or her children certain moral standards in the school and then goes out and does exactly what he's taught the children to do, and he doesn't do it, what has he just done? He might as well shut up. 
He has done absolutely no good in the lives of those children. If a pastor teaches his people the things of God and goes out and disobeys them arrogantly and defiantly, it would be better for him to shut up. Because teaching is not only instruction, it's modeling. That's what you're to do, Moses. And please notice this next thing, verse 21. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. Appoint them as officials over the thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring very difficult cases to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. Great principles of leadership. You assume the primary responsibility, but you teach, involves instruction and modeling, then you select competent leaders, train them, and then delegate. The difficult things come to you, but you delegate. So train, equip, delegate. That's what a good leader does. Train, equip, delegate. A micromanager will burn out, will burn out his people, and in time will not achieve the mission of what God's calling them to do. So by the shuffling of paper, the closing of Bibles, and the body language of the class, it's time for me to shut up, isn't it? I, wanted, I want to start here next week. We're not quite done with this. But this is, uh, this is a great section that has immense practicality for us. It really does. So I hope that's coming, coming through as we're studying this together. Are you with me? Yeah. yeah. So next week, we'll pick up again. I'd like to start with verse 20, and we'll go through that again. A couple of other things I want to comment about that. All right. Next week, we're going to get into the giving. Uh, it's now one more short chapter. The giving of the law. I want to spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to give you a, a multi-page handout, the things that are in your packet. I really, I want to approach the Ten Commandments from a very different perspective than perhaps you have been exposed to. So I hope it'll be a, a it's, a, it's fun. I really enjoy teaching this section. So uh, we're headed in it. We're going to spend a lot of time on Chapter 20. Uh, it'll take us at least two sessions to probably get through that. All right, let me pray here. Lord, we're thankful for the good rain of this day. It's been a relatively dry winter, so good things always come from rain, and we're so thankful for your provision of that. We also thank you for each one of the men around this table. We ask you to help them be all that you want them to be as men uh, in all areas to one degree or another. They are leaders. Uh, they also are men of integrity, uh, and Lord, we want each one of them, and include myself in this, to be men of faith, men who are learning and growing in their faith and dependence on you. Because Lord, every time we open our mouth, every time we carry out an action, we are representing you, and we want to do that well. But Lord, we can't do it without you. I can't be the kind of man you want me to be if I try to do it on my own. And that is true for every man around this table. We are learning faith and the trustworthiness. We're learning what it means to be dependent on you. We're learning what loving obedience looks like. And we're learning that from that kind of life comes blessing. We want to be men who represent you and represent you well. Thank you for the privilege you give me to teach this group. Thank you for what you're doing in each one of our lives. And we give you praise for that. So dismiss us now with your blessing. 
Take care of us as we go our separate ways, and we look forward to regathering again next Wednesday in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you next week.